And thanks, Ranger Rick, uh, for uh, helping put together a fantastic program. Uh, welcome to Chillicothe Bible Church. If you're visiting with us, I'm Joe. I'm one of the pastors here. Let me be among the first to welcome you here to our fellowship. Uh, we are committed to worshiping Jesus, not just through what we do here on Sunday morning, but also with our whole hearts and minds and energy and the commitment of our lives. And uh, Jim, by the way, uh, I'm glad to see your Google piano lessons are paying off, man. Uh, they really are. You're a talented guy. I, I enjoyed uh, watching our musicians play and, and uh, being able to sing along with them and worship to the Lord. Uh, but because it's our church's commitment uh, to honor the Lord in every way and to be careful to do what is right in the sight of everybody, I want to go first on that and take just a minute and make something really clear. Uh, it came to my attention this last week that during my Mother's Day message, I may not have been quite clear in what I was trying to say and may have made single moms, uh, some of them, feel a little bit bad uh, or like their situation was inherently sinful, and it's not. And uh, that isn't what I was trying to say. What I was trying to say is that sometimes... Uh, the painful circumstances that we find ourselves in are the result of sinful choices. And that obeying God's word will keep you from sin and keep you from those consequences. But if you are a single mom, let me assure you, I love you and our church loves you and we want to help you. And so what, regardless of how that situation came about, by the way, okay, uh, so, just want to be sure that 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 that's understood. Uh, I understand there was some confusion about that, and I just want to make take a minute and just clear that up right away, uh, because um, certainly not my intention. And I want you to understand that I love you, and uh, that I need sometimes grace in how you understand me as well as in what I say. So. Um, so please hear that. All right, let's move on from there for just a second uh, to Second Peter. And as you're turning there, let me just say this. Uh, the sociologist Peter Berger uh, once, said, once famously said that uh, if it's true that Indians are the most religious people on earth and Swedes are the least religious, then in America what we have is a situation where we're a nation of Indians ruled by Swedes. And, and what he meant was, is that all of the, um, is not that there are no real Christians in positions of power or cultural influence, but what he meant was, is this, that all of our major institutions, uh, whether you're talking about broadcast media, whether you're talking about movie production, whether you're talking about major universities, uh, newspapers, uh, the seats of government power, all of our major institutions are controlled by people and reflect a culture which is not just non-religious, but aggressively secular. And to the extent that Christians, uh, Christian faith and belief is acknowledged at all in our culture, very often it is uh, mocked and shown in the worst possible light. 
There, in fact, there's a TV show that's coming out here very soon. It may even be on, for all I know. I don't watch much TV live. Uh, but there's a um, TV show that's coming out soon. That The first two words of the title is good Christian, and the last word is profanity. It is a show which mocks Christian church women explicitly. Let me give you another, another couple of examples here. A newspaper article from the Minneapolis Star Tribune appeared February 10th, 2005. Uh, this is written by Bill Moyers, formerly of PBS. One of the biggest changes in politics in my lifetime is that the delusional is no longer marginal. It has come in from the fringe to sit in the seat of power in the Oval Office and Congress. For the first time in our history, ideology and theology hold a monopoly of power in Washington. They are the people who believe the Bible is literally true. One-third of the American electorate, if a recent Gallup poll is accurate. Now, this was just after the 2004 election in which President Bush was reelected and uh, there was a, also still a Republican majority in Congress. Uh, and the article goes on and on to deride anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ and who is um, a believer in the idea that the Bible is literally true. And Moyer's idea in the whole article uh, is that such ideas are the province of stupid, crazy, fundamentalist Christian kooks. And only an idiot believes that Jesus will literally return as he promised or that God will eventually judge the world for its evil. That's Bill Moyer, PBS. Or here's this one uh, from noted atheism promoter Sam Harris in his book, Letter to a Christian Nation. Buckle your seatbelt. In fact, atheism is a term that should not even exist. No one ever needs to identify himself as a non-astrologer or non-alchemist. We do not have words for people who doubt that Elvis is still alive or that aliens have traversed the galaxy only to molest ranchers and their cattle. Atheism is nothing more than the noises reasonable people make in the presence of unjustified religious belief. Did you catch that? According to Sam Harris, it is just as unreasonable, irrational, and borderline crazy to believe in God as it is to believe in alien abductions and that Elvis is still alive. And by the way, in the same book, he makes it clear that he feels exactly that way about Jesus being the Son of God and the Messiah returning for his people. Now, let me ask you, what do you think? Do you think that God is real and that his promises will have a literal fulfillment in this time, space, mass universe, or do you think that you have to divorce yourself from reality to believe that Jesus will return? Is that what faith is? It's just some sort of a Kierkegaardian irrational leap into the blackness, hoping that God is there on the other side to catch you? 
and that if you really had half a brain in any sense, you would believe in the claims of science and doubt that God exists? I don't believe that it is, and I don't believe that I have a loose attachment to reality. Some of you might question that, but I have a strong belief that people like me who believe the Bible is literally true and who trust in the idea that Jesus one day will return are more in touch, not less, with reality than those who discount those things as the province of right-wing, crazy, fundamentalist kooks. But this problem that I'm identifying, and I hope you're feeling a little bit, you know, if you, wanna, if you want somebody to really attack your faith at a deep level, read some Sam Harris. Read Richard Dawkins. For that matter, read Bill Moyers. And you will see that people who are in positions of influence in our culture hate everything that you stand for and believe and proclaim as true. And that is not a new problem, by the way. It goes back to at least, at least, the first Greek philosophers and Socrates who questioned the existence of God. It goes back certainly to Peter's day. It was present in the Middle Ages, present in the Renaissance, present in the 1800s, present in the 1900s, and it's present today. People who mock what you hold dear to be true. And so Peter wrote to it in his uh, second epistle, and he's going to give us some inspired instruction on how to deal with it. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now, I'm going to look at several more verses, but I just want you to notice a couple things from these two verses. First, Peter loves these people. He's a good pastor. He loves his people. And th these are people who are scattered all over what's now modern-day Turkey. And he says, dear friends. In fact, he calls them by that name twice in just this one chapter. And it's a short chapter, just 17 verses. Dear friends. And then verse 17, dear friends. And number two, he wants them to remember, remember what he has been teaching them. I just want to read, read it slightly differently. This is now my second letter. I have written both of them as reminders. I want you to recall three times in two verses. He emphasizes, I want you to remember what I'm teaching you. And in that, he is kind of like the Old Testament prophets. What the Old Testament prophets would do is they would call the people of Israel continually back to the law, back to their history, back to their relationship with God. And they would do so saying, remember 
Remember the Lord who brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand, with his outstretched arm, who took you through the Red Sea, who fed you manna in the wilderness, who protected you with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night gave you light. Remember the God who led you in the desert. Remember the God who gave you victory over this person and that person and this army and that army and who was your husband is actually the term that gets used a lot in the prophets. Remember that, right? And if they were in sin, the reason that they were in sin, according to the prophets, was that they had forgot all these things. Have you forgotten who God is? Have you forgotten what he has done for you? Have you forgotten? And so Peter says three times, remember. You need to remember what was spoken to you. And he, and he sums it up through the prophets. This goes back to chapter 1. Remember, he talked about how we have the word of prophets made more sure, and we have, you have the word of the eyewitnesses, the apostles. He also brings that back around here. You have, I want you to remember the words spoken in the past by the Holy Prophets. That's the Old Testament. All the Old Testament is written by prophets, men who spoke from God and who were carried along, Peter says, chapter 1, uh, by the Holy Spirit and recorded what God wanted written. Using their own personalities, their own vocabulary, their own culture, their own frame of reference, God spoke through these men by the Holy Spirit and, he, and Peter says, you need to remember the Old Testament. But, this is, and this is really interesting, because this book is written no later than 68 A.D., which is no more than 34, or no, 35 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And you have a lot of people out there, in fact, with, with uh, Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code and all these kinds of things, uh, there's lots of people contending for the idea that somehow the idea that the New Testament books were organized and regarded as an authoritative collection of Scripture on par with the Old Testament is somehow this late developing sort of notion that comes about through Constantine at, at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., okay? But yet here we have Peter saying, once you recall... Not only the words spoken by the holy prophets, but the words and the command given by our Lord and Savior, in other words, by Jesus, through what? Through your apostles. So you've got Peter saying, remember your Old Testament, remember your New Testament. And he says one more thing, and I want, to, I want you to see this before you move on. Before we move on to verse 3, Peter says that remembering these things, remembering what God spoke in the Old Testament and what he is speaking as Peter is writing in the New Testament through the apostles, will stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Now, that's not a bad translation. But if you can read that in, in Greek, it's really cool. It's got a neat word picture. It literally reads, I want, you to stim I want to stimulate you to sun-judged thinking. Now, that, that may not make it any more clear to you, but let me explain to you what the, what the word picture is. In the ancient world, you, didn't have, you couldn't go down to, to Walmart or Sam's or wherever and buy 
a steel pot with, uh, you know, Teflon in it. Uh, what you had was pottery, and you cooked in pottery, you ate out of pottery, you stored things in pottery, and so forth. So, so every place you go, everything is made out of pottery. And it's, and it's almost always glazed because it's going to be used. You're going to need to eat out of it or store something in it, or uh, you're going to need to cook in it, and you need some way of cleaning it. And if you have it glazed, well, then it's easier to clean. This is Teflon for the ancient world, right? Uh, but what you would do if you were an unscrupulous pottery merchant is you would, if, if you always have some pottery that doesn't make it through the firing process, and you would get cracked. And so what you would do if you were unscrupulous is not throw that stuff away, but fill in the cracks with wax. And it looked shiny, and it, you know, it looked okay. Of course, when you went home to cook with this piece of junk, it, the cracks would get wider, and the thing would break, and it wouldn't it would be totally useless. But, hey, you got paid. And so what people who were smart learned from this process is that they would hold a piece of pottery they were about to buy up to the sun. And they would look at it in the light. And if they saw little translucent spots in their pottery, then they knew, ah, this guy's a crook, and he has filled in the holes with wax. And when this gets hot, it's not going to hold together. And so Peter says that if you remember what the Bible says, that what that will create in you is sun-judged thinking so that you will have an integrity and a wholeness to your mind so that when it is held up to the light, amen, when it is held up to the light, you won't have any flaws or cracks. It will be solid and it will hold up the way it's supposed to. Amen? You get that? All right. Neat word picture. Okay? Um, and what he is saying, in other words, is that remembering the Scriptures is not simply a matter of information recall. You know, if, you, if you've been a student for any length of time at all, you know that when the, the test is coming, and so you've got to cram all this stuff in so you can regurgitate it back out onto paper, right? And you do this gigantic info dump on this test, and then two weeks later you can't remember how to do this stuff or what it was about, but you succeeded for the test, right? And Peter is saying, look, when he says, when I'm saying to you, remember what was written through the holy prophets and the command given by the Lord Jesus through your apostles, I'm not just saying I want you to be able to win on, win on Jeopardy or Bible trivia, you know. We used to play Bible baseball when I was in, uh, in junior church, and you'd get out the Bible trivia questions, and if you got one right, you got to go to advance to the next base and whatever. I was the king of Bible trivia, right? I'm not sure how, how well I was converted, but I was the king of Bible trivia. I could beat everybody. It was great, Okay. Peter is not saying that this is equivalent to, to righteousness and the, the kind of sun-judged thinking that he is talking about. He is talking about 
being obedient to what you have learned out of the Old and the New Testament. Okay, let's move on. Verse 3. And this is the other reason why you need to do this. He says, verse 3, First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. In our culture, many of the thought and opinion leaders uh, and the culturally influential institutions, as I have uh, alluded to earlier, specifically reject not just the supernatural, but any kind of notion connected to the God of the Bible and that Jesus is returning. And they will say that is some sort of antiquated fable connected to maybe ancient paganism or uh, Greek ideas about uh, the immortality of the soul, or they will come up with some other explanation, and they will say to you, you don't seriously, seriously, you don't actually believe that, do you? I mean, really? In 2011, you believe that some ancient Palestinian peasant is the Son of God who is coming back for you and that He's going to bring the world to an end and sit as king over an eternal kingdom? Really? Come on. Peter says these guys are coming. Scoffers are going to come with their scoffing. And he's telling you so that when this happens, you're not going to be shaken up because the Bible already tells you this is going to happen. This is going to happen. Uh, and by the way, this is the reason why you need to be grounded in God's Word. Because if you are not, what will happen is this, is that some atheist will come along, some Richard Dawkins or Stephen Jake Gold or, or Sam Harris or Christopher Hitchens or whoever is going to come along, and if you are not grounded in God's Word, he will eat the he will eat your lunch. He will eat the napkin, the sack, and your mama's note. Okay? He will eat it all. And you will come to me and you will say, man, oh, I've got doubts now and I don't understand where all this is coming from and how do I explain this? And I will try to help you piece your faith back together. Okay? But you can get really shook by some of this stuff. Because these guys sound so persuasive in their mockery and scoffing. They will say things like, I don't know what the big deal is. You're not a polytheist. You're a monotheist. And I just believe in one less God than you do. You believe in less gods than a Hindu. And I believe in less gods than you. So what? You've got to be grounded. Otherwise... This is going to happen because one of the key points they're going to make to you is this. 
where is the coming that he promised? If Jesus is coming back, where is he at? And hey, ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. In other words, this isn't going to happen because nothing like that has ever happened. There's not been any miraculous intervention into the world, and so there's not going to be any. The universe is a closed system, and God, if he exists, does not intervene in it, they will tell you. And Peter says, they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. In other words, you want a miracle, big boy? Look around you. In fact, pinch yourself. You're here. God spoke the universe into existence. And so the fact that there is someone around who question whether or not he exists is proof that he does. Because it got here somewhere, some way, and Peter says, and the Bible says consistently, it was by the word of God the heavens were made. And then he says this, and by the way, if you don't think God judges, remember this. Remember that even though the earth was formed out of water, by water, God also judged the world. Remember the flood? Read about that in Genesis, remember? He says, all the people on earth were judged by the flood. And if you think that was bad, just wait for the judgment that is coming. Because this present heavens, in other words, this time, space, mass, universe, not some some remote, you know, another dimension kind of a thing, but this world is reserved for fire. I heard Chuck Swindoll say 10 years ago that you need to get yourself a stamp for everything in your house that says reserved for fire and mark it on everything that's not a human being and even on some of them if they reject the Son of God. Because Peter says, just as that judgment happened, this one is coming. And by the way, why do they deliberately forget? Why? It is because they are sinners. He says this, verse 8, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. Elements will be, be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. What does he mean when he says that they deliberately forget? He means that they don't want these things to be true because of their sinful life. 
I knew some guys, uh, part of my first church, and these guys were godly men by all appearance. They knew the scriptures. They would debate with their atheist buddies at work and proclaim the truth of the gospel. They knew their Bibles. They took their wives to church. And then they came to me after I'd been there about four years, and they said, you know, we don't believe this stuff anymore. And I said, why not? Oh, you know, we're, we're scientists, we're engineers, and, uh, you know, it just seems all so incredible anymore. Come to find out later that both of them were neck deep in immorality. And you know what happened? People will not live with a large gap between their deepest belief and their behavior. They won't. And so one of them is going to change. Either their behavior is going to come into alignment with their belief or their belief is going to change to bring it into alignment with their behavior. And so these guys rejected God because they did not want to change what they were doing in private. And so they deliberately forget. Why? Because they want the universe to be like that. They want there to be no God. They want there not to be a return of Christ because if there is, then they know they will stand guilty before him. Peter says that the Lord is coming. He says, look, one day with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. I don't think that has anything to do, by the way, with creation and the days of creation and all that and that whole discussion. I think what he's saying is this. God exists outside of time. And time, therefore, for him works differently than it does for us. And probably the best example that I can come up with for, for this is if anybody has read the Narnia books, you know, they all take place within the lifetime of one old man who's like 80 or 90 uh, uh, by the time he dies in the, uh, in the last book and goes to be with Aslan. And he's a kid in the, in the beginning book, about 10, I think. So within 80 years of our world's time. But in Narnia time, they have thousands of years of history, right? And what Peter is saying is this, God's time doesn't work like ours. He exists outside of time. And so for us, a long time may have passed, but how long is it for God? Who knows? God doesn't experience time the way we do. And he says, but just because God's timing is different than ours doesn't mean that God is slow. And the word there means hesitant or reluctant. He is not slow, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Let me ask you a question. How many of you alive today, shoot your hand up if this is true, 
How many of you were alive in 1976? Okay. How many of you, now shoot your hand up again. How many of you are glad that God did not come back and finally and totally judge evil and cast the sinful into hell in 1976? Okay, that's me. I wasn't a believer then. I don't know about you, but if you were not a believer then, guess what happens? If the Lord had returned at that moment, you would have gone to hell. Okay, and that's what Peter is saying. Peter is saying, look, he is waiting, not because he's somehow up there going, well, I don't know if I should judge or not. I mean, it's really a hard decision, and, you know, I just don't know. Is it? No. He's saying that God loves you, and he is patient. He is waiting for the last person who is going to believe in Jesus Christ to come to faith. And when they do, boom, that will be the end. He is patient. He is waiting for the day of the final redemption of the last one. And when that day comes... Then the return of Christ will commence. And he says, look, we don't know when the, when the day will, of the Lord will come. He will come like a thief. What's that mean? It means that he'll be surprising. He will show up on a day that you do not expect. Maybe today. Hopefully today. And no one will be looking for him except for believers. But all of a sudden, the Lord of heaven and earth will be there. And he says that when that day comes, when the, when the Lord finally returns in judgment, here's what will happen. The heavens will disappear with a roar. Elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it laid bare. What he means is this, is that there is a day coming when the, this heavens and this earth will disappear. Be gone, folded up like a tablecloth and gone. And he says everything will be laid bare. He does not mean that everything necessarily, he doesn't mean that the earth will be just become bare and uninhabited. He means that everyone will stand before God and what is hidden now will be revealed before God. He means what Jesus said. that what is spoken in secret will be revealed. What is thought in secret will be made known. What you thought you had got away with, you won't. The Lord is coming back. And on the day he comes back, judgment will begin and everything will be laid bare. Now, I'm out of time, but I got... Two minutes, okay? Two minutes. Three things out of this passage. Sin to reject, a truth to remember, promise to claim. Sin to reject, truth to remember, promise to claim. Sin to reject. And the sin I want you to reject based on this passage is the sin of unbelief based on sinful desires. 
People are not atheists simply because they have thought it all through and realized, you know, the most logical, coherent explanation of the existence of creation is that it was self-created and it came about by time, space, and chance. And just our, our number happened to come up on the turn of the wheel of the, at Monte Carlo. No. People who think that don't think that from an intellectually neutral, spiritually neutral perspective. There's no neutral place to stand. They think that because their deeds are evil and they do not want to face a God of holiness and judgment. And they, so they say there is no God. The Bible says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and God gives them over to their wickedness to do what ought not be done. You need to reject the sin, unbelief, based on evil behavior. Don't want anybody in this church to be like one of those two men I mentioned who get neck deep in their evil and then can't reconcile that with their Christian faith, and so they drop back, punt on the Christian life. Truth to remember, knowing and obeying God's Word. Knowing, do not merely... Listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Knowing and obeying God's word is what produces the kind of character that enables you to stand in the light. One day we will all stand before God, all of us. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. And you will receive a reward based on your life or the absence of reward based on your life. You will be in the kingdom of God, but you will have either reward or none based on how you live. You want to live a life of character, a life of holiness, a life that reflects the image of God in you. And that comes about through knowing and obeying God's word by the Holy Spirit's power. Promise to claim. And this is the best promise that anybody ever got anywhere for anything. This is the best one out there. Anything else compared to this does not even, it doesn't even rate. Okay? There's not, not even a good comparison. The best that the world has to offer you is a kid's red wagon compared to a brand new Mercedes, okay? The big one with a driver, okay? I mean, I'm serious. This is not even on that. I mean, beyond that doesn't even compare. Okay, I'm talking about a busted wagon with no wheels compared to this. The glory of the fact that Jesus is coming back. And he is coming back, yes, to judge the world from sin, 
and it's evil. And to get rid of evil, root and shaft, is anybody glad that God is going to one day get rid of evil? Yes! I am glad. I, for one, am glad that one day there will be judgment on all the wickedness of this world and that all of the rapists and molesters and murderers and terrorists one day will be caught up with an ultimate cosmic justice meted out to them. And all the liars and thieves and idolaters and lustful people and all of them will be eliminated. They will be shut out from the presence of God and the majesty of His power. And those of us who believe in Christ and have our sin forgiven will go into a glorious kingdom forever and ever. And we will be with the Lord. Now that's the best thing, that's the best news I got. That's as good as it gets in all the world, in all the universe, the fact that Jesus is coming back and He will rescue you and He will rescue me and carry us home. All right? Now, let's pray, and let's praise God for His Word and for His promise, and let's reject sin, unbelief. God, our Heavenly Father, I thank You. Thank You for Your great and precious promises, for Your great salvation, which pulls nasty sinners, arrogant, prideful, selfish, lustful, terrible people like me, like these who stand before me and stand behind me, rescues us out of slavery to sin and death and Satan and hell and takes us home where we will be with you forever. Father, we, are, we don't have anything to offer you in comparison with that, but we praise you because, Father, your love is too wonderful for us, and we praise you for the judgment that is coming on this wicked world because, Father, we're tired of living in the presence of evil and sin and death, and we are grateful that Satan and all who follow him will one day be conquered, and God will shout victory over evil. And Father, we pray that we might be holy and never a participant in sin, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would recall the promises made to us by your holy prophets and by the Lord Jesus, your Son, through the apostles, and that we would obey them with everything that is within us. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.